short one because I got my, actually I got my rotowire spot coming up on XM in about 45 minutes. So got to get this done before then. Got a lot to talk about. Um, a lot of things going on. First thing is I have a couple drafts that I'm working on. And one of them, is something I talk about a lot, but I feel really clear on this. And I think I can make the case pretty well now. It just occurred to me while debating someone on Twitter. Utilitarianism is the philosophy of the greatest good for the greatest number. If you want to do something moral, you do the thing that accrues to the greatest good for the greatest number. And to the extent that there are more people suffering than having positive utility, that is bad. And so I actually think this is important, not just because it's some obscure philosophy, but because it's actually the philosophy under which most of our institutions, politicians, governments, that's the philosophy that they subscribe to. And they're constantly weighing, you know, pluses and minuses. And most, most educated people actually, I think, think of morality in the same terms. They kind of have the pros and cons. If we do this policy, they'll help these people, but it could hurt those people. What's the net? And let's try to find policies that we can kind of tally up the, the good outweighs the bad, and that's a good policy. I think that's how most people think um, that are educated, um, not necessarily people who are not educated. I'll go into that in a second. But I think they have been trained to think like utilitarians, and I think most of our institutions and governments follow suit. And just a quick way to illustrate it is if you have a hypothetical, I think they sometimes call this the trolley problem. There's a trolley, there's four people on one track, one person on another track. Trolley is heading for the four people who are going to get run over and killed, but there's a switch and you can have it change tracks. You can't stop it, but you can change the track and divert it to kill the one person. And most people think it's pretty obvious from utilitarian principles, kill one rather than four, greatest good for the greatest number, QED. But the problem with these hypotheticals is twofold. One is it makes it a certainty. In the hypothetical, you either definitely are going to kill four or you're definitely going to kill one. There's no, well, you know, the train's right now going to kill those four, but there's a chance it stops. But the other track, you know, maybe it's a little bit faster or it's less likely to stop. There's no variables. It's, it's just a certainty. It's not like there's some uncertain possibilities. And if there's uncertainty, then we don't really know of changing which track the trolley is going down, what it's definitely going to result in. So the problem with this is that it presumes that these outcomes are certain, that there's only two possible outcomes. And depending on whether or not you pull the switch, it's certain. It's either certain you kill four or certain you kill one. And there's no uh, possibility of anything intervening. This is the simplicity of the hypothetical. So one is that there's certainty in what's happening. And then two, that there's no other considerations, second and third order effects of this, such as, well, people are going to start to decide that, oh, well, I can kill one person if it's justified. You know, if, if you getting involved in making this switch saying, you know, I'm going to actually, the, tr the trolley is going in the direction it's going, and I'm actually going to intervene and make this switch to kill fewer people. If that, you know, that may become a precedent and people think, oh, well, I need to intervene and make sure fewer people are dead. I'm going to intervene to the extent I can in many cases now where I think it's even probable, not even certain. There's 75% chance that this action kills more people in a 20, you know, we start to be really interventionist in killing people. We start to justify being able to do anything so long as there is a, a greater good and a greater harm avoided. 
so that, you know, this precedent itself could be very dangerous, right? You could see that in the wrong hands, somebody deciding what is super important for the greater good. I'll give you an, an easy example. Let's say I buy into the trolley problem analogy and I try to put it in a much more complex real world. And I say, I'm running for president and I'm going to do a lot of good things for the country. And my opponent's running for president and he's going to do a lot of terrible things for the country. And, you know, if I have to cheat or kill him or whatever, it's okay because I'm saving more people ultimately by doing so. Once you start going down the simplistic example of the trolley problem and trying to apply it to real life, all manner of monstrous deeds can be justified in the same way. And so that's, you know, that's one of the dangers. But I, I want to get into, uh, I'm getting a little bit far afield because I want to just get into really the, the, the two issues is one, things are not certain in real life. The past is certain, right? We, we know if it's already happened, that it's happened. We know who won the Super Bowl last year. The Chiefs won the Super Bowl. But when that was in the future, we didn't know, right? I would have bet on the Chiefs instead of the Eagles if I knew. We didn't know. So it was uncertain. So the future is uncertain and the past is known. That's what makes the future the future and the past the past. If the future were totally known, completely known, then it would be the past. But it's not. It's unknown. And so because these goods and harms are always future goods and future harms, and you're talking about utilitarianism, we're talking about what we're going to do and the effects in the future. So when we start tallying up these harms in the future, we don't really know. We're treating them like they're the past, like we kill four or kill one, like it already happened, but it hasn't happened. We don't know. So you're basically, this is sort of this, um, I was going to write something called the wrong tense, about how people use the wrong, people make mistakes uh, as to what time it is. Like, you know, it's when you're looking at the future, probability matters. When you're looking at the past, probability doesn't matter. It's certain. And I think this is another such mistake where people say, well, we're, we're either going to kill four or one. Well, no, you could look at a, a decision that happened in the past and tell you and tell someone how many people were killed, but you don't know exactly what's going to happen in the future. We don't know. It's uncertain. So that's a huge one. But the second one is that the second order effects are massive, right? Like I'll give you the example with COVID. We're going to mandate this vaccine to stop the spread and prevent people from taking up ICU beds and prevent them from dying, et cetera. And people said, well, you have to take it, right? There's some very small, very, very small chance of an adverse effect and a very great chance that you help end COVID and the lockdowns and the pandemic and save all these lives. So that was the utilitarian proposition put forth. But what actually happened in real life? It wasn't like the trolley problem. They said risk and adverse effect to save this many it was an easy call. But what actually happened is it didn't even stop the spread. So that that known was actually turned out to be unknown because they said this will stop the spread, but it didn't because it's the future. They didn't know what would happen. They really didn't know. And then, of course, the side effects were much more serious and common than they let on. And the vaccine's efficacy was much less, waned a lot more quickly than they had let on. So all of those things that were sold to us as certainties were actually false. But I even think the bigger thing is the second and third order effects. The idea that you could trample on someone's civil liberties to set a precedent that if I don't want medicine, I have to take it. This is in violation of the Nuremberg Code, of my constitutional rights. So not only did it not work, even if it did work, we'd be setting a precedent that whatever that I, whatever the cost-benefit utilitarians say I have to take, if their spreadsheet says there's more benefit than cost, then I now have to take. Like it's almost would have been worse if it were more effective because if it were more effective, people would have said, you see, we have to mandate this and we got to mandate something else. And I came up with a hypothetical a couple of years ago about this, 
which was that if there was an epidemic of violent, domestic violence, rape, murders, and most of the perpetrators were men, which probably would be in that case, and somebody came out with a study that said if you can take a testosterone-reducing drug, you know, the incidence of these violent acts will go way down. And I'd say, well, I'm not doing any violent acts. I mean, I, I'm not murdering, raping, or beating up uh, any women. And so I don't you know, want to take this drug. And they'd say, look, you don't know. You could be enraged. If you have too much testosterone, you might be the next one. We can't. It's probable that people like you who don't reduce their testosterone are going to engage in this behavior. All of the people that have engaged in it you know, weren't on testosterone diminishers. So you need to take some of this. And if that greater good balance was worked out that, look, you know, I might not need it. I might never have done anything and it might diminish my virility ability to live a full life, but weighed against all the damage that these high testosterone, violent men were, were inflicting, then they could say, well, you got to take this just like you got to take the vaccine. And because we've now established the precedent that for the greater good, this has to be done then I couldn't say no. And this would happen for every single thing they wanted to give you, every drug, every treatment, every intervention. So now you see that it's not just whether the greater good, whether the greatest good for the greatest number, which turned out to be bullshit. But even if they could sell it as that after the fact, even if it turned out that there was benefit for it and the short-term harms didn't seem as grave as they are, it would still be worse because you'd basically be in a society where you lost all of your freedom, all of your autonomy, all of your ability to decide for yourself what medicines to take. We would be violating the Constitution and the Nuremberg Code for the greater good. And what the founders of the United States knew and the people who drafted the Nuremberg Code figured out is that whatever the expedient emergency is, whatever the short-term cost-benefit analysis seems to be, it's never, it's never more important than having basic rights, basic freedom, basic ability to say no. And so whatever you're selling me on, oh, if you don't do this, the whole world's going to collapse. If you don't stop eating steak, everyone's going to die of global warming. Greta Thunberg, I had a tweet that she deleted from 2018, a little more than five years ago, that said in five years, eminent scientists say the world could end. Uh, and so, you know, based on that, I got to do all this stuff. But of course it was false. And again, it's for the same thing. You can't treat the future like the past. You can't add up the cost benefits of the future like they're already done in your spreadsheet. It's just a distortion of reality. And so what ends up happening, and this is exactly what happened in COVID, is because they treat the future like it's the past, and since that is just a fundamental specious leap of logic, it's an error, category error. Once they realize that they're just making shit up, because they are making shit up, because again, the future harms and benefits, especially as you get into the medium and long-term future, you know, what does it mean to violate rights and to, you know, even if it works in the short term, especially when you get into that territory, you're making shit up. And so what ends up happening? They start to know they're making shit up. You have Matt Hancock saying, what else can we do? You know, what other variants can we scare the population with? Because at this point, he's now just trying to achieve some aim now. It's no longer about protecting people. Now it's about controlling people. Once you start to make shit up, once you're Pfizer, hey, why don't we tell a narrative about the good and the harms that accrues tens of billions of dollars to us? That's what starts to happen, right? That's what happens in all these regimes. Let's 
figure out the benefits and harms. And then when you realize that you're doing it for the future, which you don't fucking know because the future is by definition unknown. That's what makes it the future. The past is known. That's what makes it the past. Once you understand the game that you're playing, then there is no reason. There's overwhelming temptation to make shit up that accrues to your benefit. So utilitarianism is just grift. It is just making up excuses. I, you know, I see it all the time in my life. Sometimes Heather will be like, hey, uh, I want to take an Uber. And I'll be like, no, I prefer a cab. And she'll be like, no, cabs don't go on the street, right? And she'll just make that shit up. Like cabs don't go on the street. And then I see a cab after we've already called Uber. I said, we just missed a cab. It was right there. She said, well, that was a rare one. What she did was she made up the, the risk of getting a cab is we'll never get one because they don't go on the street. And the benefit of getting an Uber, even though we have to wait longer for it, is that it'll come to us. And so she just makes up the cost benefit that, that the cab won't come. And then it's obvious to get the Uber. And then, of course, the cab does come. It's a trivial example and one that she might take issue with. But the point is that even in everyday life, we do this all the time. We, we, we make arguments that you know, weigh the cost benefits. And since we're just making shit up, you know, your kid might do this kind of thing. They'll make something up. So, th so this is, you know, really simple, you know, so, so the simple argument is the hypotheticals with these trolley problems, they way, way oversimplify. First, they mistake the future for the past and start calculating future harms as though they were known, as though they were certain, which the hypothetical, they're certain, but in real life, they're never certain. And then two, they act like those are the only considerations. There's no precedent set. There's no invalidation of rights. None of that stuff matters. It's only how many people died? How many people were saved in this one instance? Even if you know they could know, they couldn't know the second, third, fourth order effects, which are more important. And so wise people like the framers of the Constitution just didn't get into that bullshit. They just said there are certain things that are off limits. Limiting free speech that's harmful is off limits, right? You can't, if I have an idea that you don't like, that you think is dangerous, that I don't want to get a colonoscopy. Oh my God, it's so dangerous. How can you, how can you say that? You can't limit that speech, even if you think it's harmful, because the much greater harm is in, is in limiting speech. Because if it turned out that I were correct in not getting it, I wasn't even weighing in, as I said, about the efficacy, but it turned out it was a right choice not to get it, and people were making very bad medical choices, that would never get corrected if we made it off limits to critique, to make an observation, or to even just say, I'm not doing it, and to say that out loud. This, this is the problem, right? The limiting free speech is itself the worst possible situation because then you can never correct if you make an error and humans are prone to error. They say to err is human. It is literally the fundamental facet of who we are. We make mistakes. And so if you can't correct, we are doomed. We always have to be able to correct. Therefore, disabling the correction mechanism, which is free speech, is much more dangerous than any possible speech you could say. The worst possible thing you could say, the worst advice someone could give you is not nearly as bad as disabling the corrective mechanism of letting people give the advice. Now, you don't have to agree. You don't have to listen to it. You can criticize them. All that's fair game, but not letting free speech, prosecuting free speech, this is a big problem. And there are people in favor of this. They think disinformation is dangerous. And this is, in my opinion, much more dangerous than any kind of disinformation because that's just it. That's on utilitarianism. Just cut to the chase. It's wrong because it's fucking treating the future like it's the past and it's wrong because it's only looking at these isolated things and these stupid hypotheticals that have nothing to do with real life and don't take into account second, third, fourth order effects. And then it ends up being a grift because you know you're making the shit up because it's the future and you don't know what's going to happen. And then you just start, hey, maybe the best thing we should do medically is the thing that accrues tens of billions of dollars to my company. Yeah, that's it. That must be the best thing to do, huh? 
and you know makes all the politicians on my team good and makes them uh, get more donations. What a, what a great idea. Let's do this for the greater good, of course. All right. Another thought I had, thing I'm working on is there are two huge concepts, and this is kind of tied in with utilitarianism, national security and public health. Nothing is more important than national security. Oh, it's for national security. It's a national security risk. It's public health. It's a public health risk. Oh my God, it's for public health. You're not going to do this for public health. And these are Orwellian utilitarian mega terms, right? I think the national security is the foreign policy, the macro, and public health is the micro, the internal. And we need to be protected from foreign invaders and we need to be protected from dying of disease. And to these massive important ends that weigh a lot on the spreadsheet, on the utilitarian spreadsheet, almost anything and everything are justified. And so, you know, the military industrial complex gets hundreds of billions to Ukraine that gets funneled back to them. And they give them all these weapons, buy weapons from them, enrich their executives, enrich the revolving door of fake ass public servants in the military industrial complex that serve and then go back serving those companies and get tons of money. Has the military industrial complex made us safer? Have, is destabilizing the Middle East? And I mean, think about how the enemies we've created when we drone a wedding, kill 20 innocent people, some guy's whole family. Think about the type of oath someone like that, if they could even dig themselves out from the absolute horror of it, would swear to get revenge. Think about the enemies that we've created. Are we making us more safe or less safe by destabilizing the Middle East? Are, is it good to be in a proxy war with Russia? Do you think that makes us more safe? So, you know, national security, they're, they're not taking care of national security. I do think that there is some necessity of being able to protect yourself should a foreign country decide to invade, which is very unlikely, but we should be able to protect ourselves in that event. And of course, I do think there should be medicine available to people if they get sick. And those things are both necessary, but you know, are we safer because of the military industrial complex meddling in Central America, in the Middle East, starting a proxy war with Russia? Is this meddling helping us? And the answer is fuck no, of course it's not helping us. It, it's making things worse. It's making things more dangerous. And then, you know, we talk about, you know, big pharma, the third leading cause of death in the United States after cancer and heart disease is medical error. And those are the medical errors they admit. What about all the medical errors they don't admit or don't even realize are errors because the pharma funded protocol isn't considered an error. So the patient died. There could have been a better protocol, but it's not the most lucrative one. And that doesn't even go down as an error. Even so, the errors they admit is the third leading cause of death. That was from the Washington Post in 2016. I doubt it's gotten any better. If anything, it's probably gotten worse. You know, so, so the idea that pharmaceutical industrial complex, the medical industrial complex is really helping us that much is dubious. Yeah, if I had a heart attack, I'd want to be in a Western hospital with professional cardiologists helping me out. If I break a bone, I'd want professional doctors stabilizing the bone and, and putting it in the cast. If I need stitches, I absolutely want a professional doctor stitching me up. All those things work. All those things are proven. But if you start to think about the totality of it, you know, the totality of giving all these people mRNA shots, most of whom did not need them, the statins for cholesterol that have been debunked, demonizing cholesterol, telling people to eat low fat and high sugar for 40 years and where the diabetes of the population is. Are they helping in the net? You know, obviously we, we had people able to stitch people up, you know, 50, 100 years ago. I mean, that was still available. A lot of the stuff is is old technology that still works. And then childhood vaccine schedule has 72 vaccines by the time a kid is 18. Is that the optimal amount? Should it be 100? Should it be 50? Should it be 25? 
Why is this off limits to discuss? Why is a category of medicine sacrosanct? No category should be sacrosanct in medicine. We should always hold it up to scrutiny and say, maybe this is too many. You know, maybe this is doing something. I mean, the immune system is complex. This is not a simple thing that we, we've mapped it out perfectly. We understand it. We don't know everything that goes on the second, third, fourth order effects. We don't know. You know, I've read some stuff that says, you know, the measles was basically killing almost nobody before the measles vaccine, that it wasn't the vaccine that did it, that basic hygiene and nutrition had, you know, the measles, people still catch it. My mom got it when she was a kid, but it wasn't a big deal. They weren't going to die of it. And the vaccine didn't really save lives. It did certainly limit the spread by a lot. So, but let's just say that's not true. Let's say it did save a lot of lives. Okay. I've heard some people think it does save lives. Let's just concede that for the sake of argument. Is it possible? I'm not saying this is true. I'm saying, is it plausible, possible that by contracting diseases like measles as a kid, your immune system is more robust later in life against, I don't know, cancer or respiratory illnesses or viruses? Is there a sense of your body getting these childhood diseases, which healthy kids fight off and people with proper sanitation and nutrition fight off pretty easily? And then they have not only immunity, obviously better immunity against measles, but immunity against other things that your immune system is learning to recognize pathogens and respond through its practice with relatively weaker pathogens than, you know, if there were some pandemic or stronger flu strain that, that got loose. So I'm not saying this is definitely true that measles prepares you for something else. It may not. It really may not. I'm just saying that like the simplistic, if we eradicate this one thing, that's just an unqualified good. And that's the end of it. More good than harm. Got to do it versus you know, what is this? Not only is, you know, all these uh, shots going into your bloodstream and your immune system, what's going on with that? Does it result in more autoimmune disease or chronic illness later in life? I mean, certainly there is an epidemic of autoimmune disease among adults now that I don't think was the case 50 years ago. I mean, there are, everybody's got something, lupus, thyroid disease. You know, there's just a million autoimmune diseases, arthritis that are epidemic basically right now. Is that because of 72 shots? I don't know. I don't know that that's the case, that it's because of that. But the idea that we are sure that it's not that, I mean, we, we can't be sure because this is a complex system. Your immune system goes out, you know, out of whack. And coincidentally, they're feeding all the stuff into it. To me, that is a risk. Now, if you read the literature and you're satisfied that the reward outweighs the risk and you want to do this uh, for your kid and for yourself, then you should absolutely do it. I'm not saying do it or don't do it. I'm saying this should absolutely be scrutinized. It's not sacrosanct. The amount has increased precipitously over the last 50 years. I think when I was a kid, I got like 10 vaccines. I don't know how many I got. Nowadays, they get 72 before they're 18. This is all accruing to the, a lot of it is accruing to the benefit of the pharmaceutical companies that make these vaccines and to the system that if it does cause problem, now you're more de you know, dependent on the system. If you have autoimmune disease, you got to take medication for that. You know, are we medicalizing perfectly healthy people at an early age for no reason? Or there is a reason, but maybe it's, it's um, in a complex system. That's not the ideal thing to do. I think we should think about this stuff. This should never be off limits. I'm fucking, you know, the idea, oh, you're an anti-vaxxer. Why would you be anti a category of medicine if a vaccine is going to help 
more than it harms and you want it and it's taken via informed consent, you should absolutely take a vaccine. Why would you be anti this particular type of medicine? But why would you be pro this type of medicine? You know, even if it causes more harm, even if the second and third order effects are uncertain, why would you just be for forcing that on people uh, when you really don't know? You shouldn't be pro and you shouldn't be anti. You should put all of these medicines under scrutiny and give individuals the choice whether they want to take them. There should be no sacred cows. Fuck you. You know, you don't get to say what I have to take or what someone else has to take. If I'm perfectly healthy, it's my fucking choice to take it or not take it. It's just like a colonoscopy. I can take it. If it's available, if it's really that good, then people will be persuaded to take it. If it's not that good or the people that make it lie all the fucking time, then a lot of people are going to choose not to take it. And you made your fucking bed and fucking lie in it and stop crying uh, about what other people's choices, especially when you were unpersuasive. Not only you were unpersuasive, you tried to force people and people don't like to be forced. You, you couldn't persuade. You didn't have the goods. You couldn't persuade people. And you know what? In the case of the mRNA, not only did you force people, not only did you not persuade a lot of people, and a lot of people took it only because they did it to travel or to keep their job. The people who voluntarily took it are probably a minority, I would think. I think most people did it because they felt they had to, and a lot of people didn't do it. And you failed to persuade and you tried to force, and it turns out the people that didn't take it were fucking right. They were fucking right. In fact, the people who are unvaccinated are least likely to catch COVID now, and the people with more vaccinations, this is according to the Cleveland Clinic, not me, uh, are more likely to contract COVID. So you fucked up, and you did a bad job, and now people very rightly are questioning everything, and they should. You should. You already should have. You can't use insults like anti-vaxxer to say you can't question this why are you the priest you're the only one who knows the word of god are you the only one with fucking access to god because you're not a priest you're a person with a fucking credential who works for a pharmaceutical company that's all you are you're not even a fucking scientist right a scientist is somebody it's not about a scientist like a journalist a journalist is somebody who's trying to get information who's trying to figure out what happened and write about it and publish their findings. That's what a journalist is. It doesn't matter what degree you have. It doesn't matter if you work for the fake ass New York Times. All that matters is if you are legitimately trying to get to the bottom of the matter and you're publishing on the matter that you're looking into, you are a journalist. If you are a scientist, what you are trying to do is look at the data, the information and the observed phenomena and find the best explanation for it. The one that fits the data and the observed phenomena best. And then that will be your hypothesis for now. And then if something falsifies it, you then realize, okay, my current hypothesis no longer fits and I got to find a better one. That's what a scientist is. It's not somebody with a fucking degree and wears a fucking bow tie and a lab coat around and, and shows up on TV and says they're a scientist. That is not a scientist. A scientist is somebody who tries to fit the best explanation to the observed data and phenomena. They're not the person being paid by a fucking pharmaceutical company to via utilitarianism, figure out the greatest good for the greatest number for everybody that, oh, just by the way, gives total control over the population and rewards and remunerates pharmaceutical conglomerates with tens of billions of dollars. That is not a fucking scientist. Fuck Peter Hotez and do not defend him. I see people coming to defend him. Oh, he's a guy in a lab code. You know, he knows what he's doing. He's a scientist. You know, Joe Rogan's not a scientist. Joe Rogan's a meathead. Do not defend him. I promise you that take will age as poorly as your vaccine mandate takes. I promise you, those of you who were like, just get the vax and shut the fuck up, or people should be in camps if they don't take the vax. Those people, the Noam Chomskys and the fucking losers who were trying to run Aaron Rodgers out of the NFL, even though he's absolutely right, and Cole Beasley and Kyrie Irving, the people that shot on them, the Mina Kimeses, the people who try to get all indignant about it, 
Those takes aged horribly. And if you defend Peter Hotez, it will be equally bad. I promise you, the guy is a total charlatan. He was saying the vax shouldn't be, that you shouldn't take a chance on an mRNA vaccine while Trump was president and change his tune after the election. This guy is a total liar. He just recently tweeted that COVID was the leading cause of death for children. A total lie. The guy is a charlatan. Do not defend him. And what's funny is that, you know, Rogan is, you know, Rogan, he's just a guy. He's not some PhD credentialed guy. And RFK is much more credentialed. Obviously, he's a lawyer and obviously he's done litigation that's had him, forced him to look deeply into the science and science papers and understand science. But that doesn't mean he's right. RFK could be totally fucking wrong about everything he says. He could be. I don't know. I haven't really examined his claims. I think his claims are absolutely plausible on their face. But could he be wrong? Absolutely, they could be wrong. But the difference in my perception between Rogan and, and RFK on the one hand, who are like, here's what I think and here's why, and I'll and let's go debate, and Hotez, who's just a fucking charlatan. These guys, I think, are earnestly saying what they believe. I don't think it was really to RFK's advantage five, 10 years ago when his whole family was calling him anti-vaxxer and everyone was reviling him for his, for his work. I don't think that was to his uh, professional or social advantage to do that. You know, but Hotez did everything for his professional and social advantage. He's just a fucking grifter. That doesn't mean that there aren't people who earnestly believe that. I, I find it hard to believe right now at this point that, that people who are not just so brain broken and biased still believe the mRNA vaccine is a good idea for, for most people in the population. But there are definitely many people who quite plausibly believe the childhood vaccines are extremely helpful, that they earnestly and plausibly believe that, and they should be listened to, and they should get their day. Those people should articulate their views, and we should listen to what they have to say. And I think we should absolutely listen to RFK and what he has to say. And I think no matter where you come out on that, we absolutely should not mandate any medical treatments for anybody. I used to think, ah, oh, the childhood one, that's a tough call. Fuck that. Now that I've seen how these companies behave during COVID, now that I have gone down to logical conclusion, nothing should be mandated at all. You have the burden as public health, if you're actually legitimate public health, to make your case and persuade people. If you force people, you're not legitimate and you're violating rights and absolutely should be scrutinized like anyone else. All right. A few more things that uh, are on my mind. Bitcoin, uh, BlackRock, Fidelity, both among other large investment companies filed for spot Bitcoin ETFs. I didn't look at the language of the filings and I'm not an expert in these kind of instruments, but it, at the very least, it, it shot up the price a bunch as people try to front run this. And ostensibly, it would mean that these companies are going to get uh, Bitcoin exposure to their large institutional investors. Large institutions can't just go and self-custody Bitcoin or just buy it Coinbase. And they need sort of all these requirements and institutions like BlackRock or Fidelity can meet those requirements for institutional investors. And you would think that that would you know, really drive the price up First, people front running them, then, then, then them buying in size, and then countries and institutions and other large corporations feeling like they better get some of this on the balance sheet. Here we go to the moon. But there's a downside also. And I think the obvious one is what happened with FTX is let's say BlackRock buys, I don't know, 10,000 Bitcoin. I'm just making up the number. And that shoots the price up a bunch. And then they sell it to their investors to this ETF. I'm not sure the mechanics of it, but could they? It seems like they could sell, you know, have 10,000 Bitcoin at 30,000 a pop. What is that? That's $300 million worth, 10,000 Bitcoin, 30,000, $300 million worth. And they sell $2 billion worth to their investors. 
but they only have you know fractional reserve Bitcoin. They're selling paper Bitcoin. If people want to redeem it in the short term, only a few do. They can, you know, they can sell and have redemptions, but you know, it's going to be opaque. We're not necessarily going to know. And then what you're going to do is, you know, Bitcoin is valuable because of the fixed supply. And basically they're turning Bitcoin into the dollar where there's an infinite supply because they can keep selling more paper Bitcoin to the investors to meet the demand without actually removing supply because they're just selling a promise for Bitcoin. And, you know, eventually they would get sued. The investors would get wrecked, but that could be a while from now. So that's a risk. And that is something that I think could happen. But the good thing is that Fidelity is doing it. Other companies are doing it. So there's some competition between them. And I'm not sure exactly how it would play out, you know, the second, third order effects of this, but do not trust these companies. I and mean, it could just be, you know, on its face, like, look, they know, they see the writing on the wall, dollars going to get printed. This is a hedge or it could be some fuckery and I don't rule out the latter, but I think on its face, it's probably good news. And certainly the profile of it is going up. The more that they're buying, I think the more the individual investors will probably be more confident in buying the actual thing itself and taking into self-custody, which really does remove supply and then really does drive up the price. So that's my take on that. I'm not that sure. Other thoughts, I've got about 10 minutes, five, 10 minutes. Elon Musk versus Mark Zuckerberg, MMA fight. I don't know if this will ever happen. I would bet against it happening. But first off, they should have the winner owns both companies. So if Musk wins, he owns Facebook and or Meta or whatever it is. And if Zuckerberg wins, he owns Twitter and Tesla. Musk gets Facebook and Instagram and all that shit. So, okay. So that should be the stakes. Then it would be a good fight, right? Then they would train seriously. Zuckerberg is like training, apparently. I don't know if it's just bullshit, you know, like he's just a total coward and he's just training and no one tells him the truth that he's that he's a weakling and he can't fight i think he looks like he's in pretty good shape and elon musk kind of looks fat and out of shape but elon musk is like i don't know six one six two something like that so i think mark zuckerberg is like five seven so musk if he gets in the gym you know could could outweigh him by 40 50 pounds and that's a big advantage so i hope it happens i think we should have more of that just a good fist fight you know draft cheat on twitter used to challenge uh his enemies on Twitter to fistfights and they'd always back out. And I think that's a good way to settle it. Old fashioned. It used to be a duel, right? You'd kill somebody. I mean, that, that was real man days, right? Like you had a dispute with somebody. It's a public dispute. Your honor was on the line. So you just fucking dueled and one of you would get killed. You know, I mean, this is small potatoes. This MMA stuff. No one's going to get killed. They probably won't even get hurt. So Zuckerberg's younger too, better shape, but I don't think it's going to happen. I think it's funny though. And I think they should be settled like this more often. Politicians in the primary can fight. RFK is 69 years old, but he's jacked. There's a, there's a whole thing. It was a, a meme going around of, would you rather trust Hotez, who's this sack of shit, versus RFK, who I think is older. I don't think Hotez is 69. He's probably in his 50s, Hotez. Who, who would you trust on health? The guy who's jacked and obviously in shape or the guy who's a sack of shit? And all these midwits were like, that's stupid. He's a doctor. It doesn't matter if your doctor's out of shape. And I would say it's it's not dispositive what kind of shape your doctor's in before you take his advice. But I think it's probative, right? I mean, all of us have the ultimate skin in the game in terms of our health. I mean, being healthy is super important to your quality of life, to your longevity, to your happiness. Health is huge. So we're all incredibly motivated to be healthy. And if one guy, despite this inherent motivation, just can't do it or plainly doesn't know how, because it's obviously worth your time. It's like, oh, I, I'm weak and I eat junk food, but 
He doesn't even know how to prevent himself from eating junk food. And so how is he going to tell other people how to be healthy if he can't even master his own health? He can't even master his own metabolism, his own desires for eating shit. So, you know, he's going to feed people into the model of eat shit and let the medical system give you pills, give you vaccinations. So you have a guy who doesn't really even know how to take care of his health preemptively and avoid the system. And he's costing the system. He's encouraging people to basically just be dependent on the system. So, you know, I think it's extremely probative what the guy looks like and what his health is. And if a doctor is totally out of shape, I mean, he's going to want you dependent on the system. He's going to know within the system if you're a sack what you should probably do, maybe, but he's not going to know what's going to cause health. And I, I think it's a valid point. Now, it's not dispositive. There's, you know, you could be a total crank and be jacked. I mean, some people are genetically just lucky and some people are genetically a little less lucky with that. And moreover, Dr. Fauci, who's one of the worst of the worst, looks fantastic for 82, right? So if you just went by, uh, should you take the advice? If he looks good, then you'd have to take Fauci's advice. And I don't want to do that. So again, it's not dispositive, but it's, it's probative. It's, it's worth something. I think the midwits who are like, no, it's, that's stupid are just totally off base. It does matter. The bozo in a bow tie is not, to me, that's not persuasive. And, you know, he has to have some reason why he's not able to master his own health. And he's going to want you to be in the paradigm that he's in, obviously. Uh, a couple other things. Um, Alex Berenson, the uh, COVID skeptic who was right about a lot of things, even sued Twitter, sued the government and won, settled, started to quote tweet RFK and basically imply that you know, he likes RFK, but that R RFK is a conspiracist. And I'm thinking, dude, that's what they called you. <laughs> These people did, had, had no epistemic humility. They called you a conspiracy. You turned out to be right. And now you're using the same slur to, to someone else. Now, it may turn out that he's wrong, as I said. But how about a little bit of fucking epistemic humility? Maybe he's right just like you were right. How the fuck do you know? You don't know for sure. I mean, they conceit that, oh, yeah, he's a conspiracist. I was only seemed like a conspiracist, but I was actually right. But he's definitely a conspiracist and I know the difference. No, you don't fucking know. We don't know for sure. That's the thing about science. It's not settled entirely. So just say, I'm on a better way to do it. He's not a conspiracist. You could say, he believes some things that I'm not persuaded of yet. I need to see more evidence. He hasn't made his case persuasively to me. That's a great way to disagree, right? You say, I'm not persuaded. It doesn't, you're not saying he's a conspiracist. Not only saying he's wrong, okay, is A, that's conceit, but that's even better than not only is he wrong, he's a conspiracist. He's, he should be dismissed even to have standing to be right or wrong because he's a conspiracist. Fucking Alex Berenson, really? You of all people? I mean, these people are so, I mean, they, they fought all the fucking hordes of people calling them that, and now they're so desperate, what, to seem reasonable that they're going to now use that epithet on somebody else? It's just like the kid who gets bullied and punched in the face and then what does he do? He goes and bullies the next kid when he has an opportunity. So that's pretty weak. All right, I'm running out of time. My phone's going to ring any minute. So I'm probably have to wrap this up. I got a lot more shit to say. Man, I have a lot more shit to say about people defending the indefensible. This Stockholm Syndrome. These people locked you down too. They made you take the fucking juice also that you did not need if you were healthy. They made you do this stuff and you're defending this shit. Oh no, it's just public health. Stop being a conspiracy theorist. It's going to go away, blah, blah, blah. Stop defending the indefensible. You have Stockholm syndrome. This is ridiculous. You were locked down too. Your rights were violated too. But you don't want to think about it. You just want to move on. Well, I'll tell you. I saw a tweet from Nick Carter that I thought was uh, pretty good. He said, I'm not moving on until we get tribunals for those responsible. If there is no reckoning, I will never move on. It's as simple as that. That's how I feel. 
I'll move on when we get fucking justice. And if we don't get justice, then I'm not moving on. And so listen to this podcast. It's going to talk a lot about that kind of stuff. All right. I got to go. That's it for now. Till next time.